2024 is an election year for the United States. And one of the stories so far is the political realignment that we're continuing to witness, with the working class moving to the right. This is something that is also happening here in Canada. And my guests on today's program have written an entire book about the phenomenon and what it might mean for the future of politics. John B. Judas is editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, a former senior writer at the National Journal, and a former senior editor at the New Republic. Rui Teixeira is a contributing columnist at the Washington Post, a co-founder and politics editor at the Liberal Patriot Newsletter on Substack, and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Their new book is Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. John B. Judas and Rory Teixeira are my guests today on Lean Out. John, Rui, welcome to Lean Out. Glad to be there. Delighted to be here. Thanks for making the time to come on today. I found your book fascinating, and it really helped me to understand some of the political currents in my own country, which have become a little extreme. But I want to start today with the 2016 election. The dominant narrative in the American media was that Trump won the working class white vote by appealing to racism. Why is that not an adequate explanation for what happened? Well, there were a few other issues besides uh, racism. The country was suffering from the uh, still from the Great Recession and from uh, losing a lot of its industry to China. If you look at uh, Trump's uh, vote where he won swing states, states like North Carolina with its furniture industry, the Midwest, which we know has auto, rubber, all those other tires, all those other industries, those were those were places where Americans had lost a lot of industrial jobs. And there's a considerable correlation between that and Trump's vote. And when you actually went to the Trump rallies, which I did, the first thing he talked about was often uh, corporations leaving the country and leaving uh, workers in the lurch. He would talk about Nabisco Oreo cookies, uh, make uh, leaving Chicago, Harrier leaving Indiana. So that was a big part of his appeal. But a lot of the mainstream media, so-called, just missed it and uh, focused entirely on, well, race and immigration. And immigration again was a big part of its his appeal. That's not that's not a, no question about that. But that also had a big economic as well as social dimension. Yeah, I mean, Trump's genius was, you know, recognizing that the Republican Party base was shifting. It was increasingly dependent upon working class voters. But these working class voters were increasingly unhappy, not, not just with Democratic elites, but with Republican elites. So he was able to garner the nomination by basically running against the elites of the country as a whole and how the rest of the Republicans were in bed with this. And you're just being left behind. Nobody cares about you anymore. I care about you. And it turns out he could run that same playbook against the Democrats quite effectively, especially someone like Hillary Clinton, because a lot of these people in these left behind areas did, in fact, feel and know they were being left behind and they weren't high on the list of things to care about. And as John's pointing out, Trump ran on trade. He ran on runaway shops. He ran on immigration. He ran on a lot of 
policy issues that were like missed by you know the mainstream press because all they could hear was he doesn't like black and brown people he's a racist he's just a horrible horrible person and that's really what hillary ran on and that's what 90 percent of her ads were about whereas trump's ads were about these kinds of broad policy issues so it really is quite extraordinary the level at which uh, this was not understood by people who are the shepherds of the conventional wisdom in America and who uh, necessarily failed after his election to understand what what hit them. As far as they were concerned, it was this bizarre outpouring of the deplorables against all that is good and right with the world. Mm. And your previous book together, The Emerging Democratic Majority, argued that by uniting professionals and single women and minorities, the party would enjoy an advantage, possibly over several decades. But in this book, you write about the significance of what you call the great divide in America. What is that? And when did you first become aware of it? Well, I, I think we became aware of it sometime around uh, 2010, a after being lauded for uh, anticipating the Democratic majority, the Democrats lost their majority in the, in the House in the 2010 elections, and there was a dramatic repudiation. And again, that election reflected, you know, not just college-educated, but non-college-educated, but a kind of divide in the country between those areas, the great metro areas uh, that depend upon high tech and in the information economy and on universities and professionals were dominant part again of its culture and a uh, small town mid-sized town America which was turning against the uh, Democrats I mean believe it or not rural America you, you used to be the heartland of the Democratic Party and that had started going south a little before that but but again, in the 2010 election and beyond, you saw these towns like Erie, Pennsylvania, Youngstown, Ohio, that had been a very loyal Democratic communities, but were industrial, uh, leaving the part, leaving the party and becoming uh, Republicans. So that's the that was the great divide that we saw. Yeah, in some ways, this is precisely what we worried about in the emerging Democratic majority, but nobody paid attention to it because we argued that yes, the sort of tectonic plates of American politics were shifting in some important ways would benefit the Democrats, these demographic, economic, ideological changes. You could see the outlines of a, a, a sort of solid Democratic majority. But we emphasize that, you know, if you look at the trends among the white working class in particular, which still loom very large in the country, despite being a declining demographic, they had not been favorable to the Democrats because of, you know, the reflection of that great divide we're talking about, which goes back to the 70s and 80s when geographical and economic divides start opening up between the working class and the more privileged and more educated areas of the country. And we said, well, OK, this majority could work and we think has an excellent chance. However, Democrats need to be very careful to maintain a solid minority share of the working class, white working class, 40% overall, maybe maybe more like 45% in the industrial Midwest states where the, the, the sort of weight of these voters is much larger. And that if they didn't do that, that could undercut the whole political arithmetic of this emerging coalition. But it was remarkable how quickly that was forgotten. And as John was pointing out in 2008, as we, while we were uh, hailed as Sears, everybody ignored the fact that Obama actually did relatively well among white working class voters. And uh, people immediately forgot it. Then in 2010, they get sandbagged with this 
sharp move, especially among white working class voters away from the Democrats. 2014, somewhat similar. And then 2016, of course, you know, <laughs> history was made. So we we were very clear, I think, about that that great divide potentially could bite Democrats in ways that they were not going to be happy about if they didn't pay careful attention to it. And it, back to your question about the 2016 election, what's remarkable about it in some ways is that Democrats completely forgot what country they're really living in. There is a great divide. There are a lot of people out there who don't like Democrats and don't like the way the country's evolved economically, don't like elites, don't like professionals, think they're being looked down upon. And if they, uh, you know, sort of appeal to directly as someone like Trump did, that really undercuts the Democrats. And now we see, and maybe this is something we'll get into, that non-white working class voters are starting to move toward the Republicans, which really calls into question this sort of democratic model, because I think a lot of them were willing to interpret the 2016 election and the sort of trends among the white working class as just indicating racism and xenophobia. But when you have Hispanic and black working class voters starting to get less enthusiastic about your party, that does raise some questions about uh, whether this truly is all about racism. Maybe it's a lot more complicated than that. I thought it was really interesting when you were writing about Obama that you noted that during his presidency, income inequality reached heights not seen since 1928, and there was a net loss of 300,000 manufacturing jobs. Um, in terms of the working class vote, this is a sizable, important part of the electorate. If if that working class vote rejects neoliberal economics and cultural radicalism, how exactly is it that the Democrats have come to embrace this exact combination as their strategy. I think I think people in Canada find that really hard to understand. Well, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with the decline of the labor movement in the United States, which you haven't suffered from to the same degree that we have. I mean, the private sector workers now are what, five or 6% uh, unionized? Six. Six. Yeah, they used to that used to, again uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, about a third of working class families were union members. And the labor movement gave the uh, Democrats a social and political base that it just doesn't have anymore. As it began to disintegrate, to deteriorate or however you want to put it in the 70s and 80s, the Democrats slowly but surely lost not just voters, but they also lost an element within their governing coalition that kept the party online on issues like taxes and trade uh, and regulation. And in the absence of that, you had in the, let's say, in the Clinton administration, it starts in 1992, where the key person becomes uh, Bob Rubin, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, again, nothing against him personally, but politically, he was a classic neoliberal, uh, free trade, relatively open borders on immigration, wishy-washy on regular financial regulation, no financial deregulation, but big on welfare and things like that, on social issues. So that became the Rubin politics became the democratic politics and the, the labor movement was no longer strong enough to challenge it within the ranks of the party so that's that's that was i think the key development yeah and of course when obama comes into office in 2008 2009 who shows up again <laughs> the rubenomics crowd 
Timothy Geithner as Secretary of Treasury and so on. It's like, you know, the same old, same old. So even though it was touted as, you know, the great hope and change kind of election or everything is going to completely change. In fact, in some ways, important ways, things didn't change at all. Another thing about the sort of the Democrats losing their anchor in the working class, particularly the union movement, is there's a cultural element to it as well. It becomes easier for the Democrats to get enthralled by the sort of latest culturally radical trends among their uh, young and professional and college educated base, become concerned with the, the rhetoric and, and issues that are of concern to these guys, these folks, because they do have much less of an anchor in the working class. And the union movement has very little influence on the policymaking apparatus and the culture of the Democratic Party. So you, you have a simultaneous move over time, and though that may be changing now somewhat toward this neoliberalism, at the same time as you you sort of lose your cultural anchor in the working class. And it becomes much easier for Democrats to get you know weirdly obsessed with issues around race and gender, around immigration, crime. I mean, all these kind of strange positions that Democrats 20 years before wouldn't have dreamed of taking now become relatively easy for the Democrats to, to glom onto. And by doing so, their their culture becomes more divorced from your average working class voter, union or non-union. And I think that's a lot, a lot what's happened. You write about this sort of shadow party of the Democrats and, and how it pushes the party to more extreme positions. Tell us a little bit about that and, and why you include the New York Times in that shadow party. Oh, okay. John, hit him. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do it? Uh, well, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party used to ha you used to be able to make a distinction between its governing coalition, which was the Northeast establishment. You know these big shots wearing ties and stuff like that, mainly guys too, and um, the the electorate. But really, the era of social media, among other things, uh, we live in a new political era. And the parties now, a lot of their governing coalition is much broader and includes uh, big media, even, uh, you know, down to the level of people who have huge uh, Twitter following. Foundations are extremely important now. And this is true, again, of the Republicans as well as Democrats. So you have this big uh, shadow party, think tanks, foundations, media, that set the tone for the party. So even if, let's say, in 2020, uh, you couldn't find a national politician, a congressional candidate, or a, uh, let's say, uh, certainly the pre uh, presidential candidate, Biden, who believed in defunding the police. The Democrats were nonetheless tarred with that slogan. Because it was, again, it was something the Ford Foundation supported, Black Lives Matter, New York Times, all these publications. So the 1619 Project, again, that the New York Times, that the dominant event in American history was uh, the, the slave trade coming to the United States, not the American Revolution. 
that becomes again identified with the Democratic Party, even though you, again you couldn't find a particular politician who would endorse that view. So that's the that's the respect in which you which I'd say you you have a shadow parties and the Republican Party has you know American greatness all this stuff I mean they have they have you could say even nuttier people than the Repo- uh, Democrats pushing these kinds of issues that marginalize them and help the Democrats in spite of everything to win elections. Yeah, I mean the progressive left, uh, the wokish you know, more educated part of the Democratic Party clearly dominates the shadow party, all these institutions John's alluding to, you know, the foundations, the advocacy groups, the nonprofits, of course, key media organizations. One way I think about it is they control the commanding heights of cultural production in this country. They basically set the tone for what good and decent people are supposed to think about the world. And, you know, I do think the 1619 Project is a perfect example of this. I mean, this comes out of the blue. All of a sudden, you know, there's this massive special issue, the New York Times Magazine, informing us the true founding of America was 1619, when the first slaves were brought over to the United States from Africa. And in fact, did you know the American Revolution was really fought to defend slavery? I mean, this is like a complete upending of the understanding of most Americans about their country and how it had evolved and what it was about. But this sort of, in a way, nobody blinked. I mean, it was astonishing the way people fell into line immediately about this. And of course, you know, the George Floyd summer and all that, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was remarkable the extent to which this became a uniform point of view among a large sector of the educated elites who run, who sort of run the, the, the country's cultural production. And the New York Times is a perfect example of that and promoted it. Now, the Times has pulled itself back from the brink a little bit. They've become a little bit more pluralistic, but they're still mostly in that corner. And, and uh, you know, a lot of other outlets are even worse. So it really is, you know, quite striking the way the shadow party and its associated institutions, especially the media, do set the tone or the discourse, as it were, in the United States. And again, what what sort of civilized people are supposed to think, right? Good people, decent people, honorable people, people who who understand that the other side are are the tools of Satan, and uh, you know we're we're the we're the people on the right side of history. Um, I think our view is that's not a healthy attitude for any party to have, Republicans or Democrats, because it does lead you away from thinking about your fellow Americans. And the voters on the other side is real people of real concerns, complicated ways of viewing the world. And perhaps we need to listen to what they have to say and figure out how to reach them instead of dismissing them as as reactionary troglodytes. And while we're talking about the discourse and and how it unfolds, um, you refer here to a term, the Fox News fallacy that I found very helpful. (laughs) Walk us through what that is. That's Rui's term. He's he's in charge of that. He, He invented it. I'm in charge of the Fox News fallacy. That's my department. So, uh, you know, I was just struck in the wake of the 2020 election. Of course, I thought about this before, that if you bring up any given issue that might be brought up by conservatives, by an outlet like Fox News or the Washington Free Beacon or what have you, be it around crime, be it around, you know, the level of immigration at the border, a number of other things, the reaction of Democrats to these kind of criticisms, there's, there's too much crime. It's out of control murder rates too high. There's too many carjackings. There are too many people coming over the border. It does seem kind of out of control. We should do something about this. Like, oh, that's a Fox News talking point. 
there's really nothing to see here. Nothing's going on here. If you look at crime, it's all because of COVID. And you look at the statistics in the right kind of way, it's not really a problem. And the border, oh, you know, and the initial line in this, well, it was just the hot weather. Lots of people come over in the hot weather. It's nothing to worry about. So um, there was this, this, this sort of epistemic. <laughs> they used to talk about the George W. Bush uh, Republican Party as having epistemic closure. They couldn't think outside of a certain small set of assumptions. I think Democrats have fallen prey to that as well. Whereas when they hear some of these Fox News criticisms about whatever, it's kind of like, well, it's all lies. It's all misinformation. My job as a Democrat, as a good progressive, is to deny there's anything at all to these points. That in fact, it's all, you know, sort of done in bad faith. It's, you know, there, there's nothing really to see there. And my job is to deny, deny, deny. And, you know, that's a problem because, in fact, Fox, <laughs> there's a reason why, there's a couple of good reasons Fox News may be talking. One, it is a real problem. And two, they understand the Democrats are vulnerable on it. So if your response is just to like act like, you know, there's nothing going on here and anyone who believe this is probably a closet racist then I don't think you're going to be able to reach the kind of voters that you might want to reach and expand your, your your coalition and take seriously the kind of voters who aren't already loyal Democrats. So uh, we do feel that that's something that underlies a lot of the Democratic reaction to some of these key issues we talk about in the second part of the book on cultural radicalism. And I think it's to the disadvantage of the Democrats. And as I've argued repeatedly, puts a ceiling on their support. Right. It doesn't mean they can't win elections, but it does mean it's um, an, among a number of things that stand in the way of broadening their their coalition, because basically people are going to sign up if you tell them they're all idiots who are being duped by Fox News. That's just not the way it works. It, it just came up, you know, last week or la last two weeks with this controversy over uh, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, because uh, the charges that she had plagiarized came from right-wing publications and from a right-wing provocateur, this guy, Christopher Rufo. And the initial decision by the Harvard Corporation not to do anything about it was based, my understanding, and that was based on who it came, who the charges came from. This was just people uh, trying to knock her off, so there couldn't be any really val validity on in the, on the charges themselves. But that, as it came out, as more and more instances came out of plagiarism, uh, people had to take it seriously. But the first first reaction was classic: uh, uh, what Rui's talking about, Fox News fallacy. Yeah, I mean, and underlying that too. I mean, if you you think about the Claudine Gay controversy writ larger, I mean. It shouldn't have been a. It wasn't a state secret that she got the job because she was a black woman who was basically DEI enforcer type, not because she was a profoundly great scholar. I mean, she climbed the academic ladder by being a, as I say, a DEI enforcer, the famous, should be famous black, uh, brilliant black economist, Roland Flyer. Do they know what this is in Canada? DEI, you you have this stuff too. Diversity, equity, inclusion. You got that up there. We sure do. We sure do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so, yeah. so right so yeah so i mean she was already vulnerable in that stuff but again democrats would always defend oh no no she's just like the perfect person for the job they cast the net widely and that's what they came up with and also you know the her, her testimony before congress i mean she could make you could make a case for free speech yeah i mean people should be able to say free palestine for sure or even say really awful things but the fact of the matter is the regime she was in charge of 
at, at Harvard was constantly like sanctioning people because they said there are two biological sexes or said other stuff that wasn't part of the current DEI regime uh, at the at the college. So, you know, they were dead last in the fire rankings of free speech. So there's so many vulnerabilities there. But again, Democrats first reaction was to say, oh, no, no, no. this is just the, the the worst kind of racist, you know, sort of lynch mob going after this wonderful person, Claudine Gay. I mean, that's really what it's all about. It's all being made up by the right. So, uh, you know, and this is just going to come up again and again uh, until and unless Democrats start listening more closely to uh, these conversations and reacting to them like, you know, less defensively and more like this is this is a discussion that people should really have about crime, about immigration. Um, about gender ideology and so on, that there is not, in fact, just one right way of thinking about this. And anyone who deviates from this is a, is a hateful person. Have you ever noticed how hateful is something that a term that's sort of became really popular in the last several years? You know, it's sort of like the go to term. Oh, that's hateful. That's hateful. You know, so like, OK, you know, like, OK, but maybe there's something to this point. Maybe we should discuss it. Maybe there really are only two biological sexes. I mean, this is like a pretty reasonable argument. Anyway, end of rant. But, you know, it does it does blow my mind sometimes. Now, you do anticipate criticism in this book in that you have focused on the Democrats. And you, you ask yourselves, why have we just focused on the Democrats? Why haven't we also written about the Republicans here? There's this is about polarization. Obviously, there's two sides here. This is criticism I get sometimes as someone on the left who interrogates the mistakes of the left. What is your answer to that criticism? Well, the answer is that uh, there, there are 400 books about Donald Trump and about, <laughs> about uh, the nuttiness of uh, the Trump. We, you know, we had hearings here on January 6th that lasted months, months and months. So that's all known. But we were concerned that uh, the Democrats and Rui and I are both uh, identified with the Democratic Party uh, and have voted for them, uh, are recognizing that they face very similar problems to the Republicans and that both parties have these kind of extremes that are dominating them and that are making it impossible uh, to create the kind of majority that we think uh, we should have in the country, one that, represent, that does represent the majority of people, the many against the few, that uh, won't put up with you know, again, uh, tax policies that favor the rich and so on and so on. But we don't we don't have that. Well, I mean, and the way I always think about it is, OK, let's grant <laughs> that the Republican Party is really messed up. This MAGA thing is kind of nuts. Trump pretty nuts. There's a lot of this is like a really messed up and, and confused and in many ways disorganized and dysfunctional party, the Republican Party. OK, if that's true. Why can't the Democrats beat the pants off of them, right? I mean, what is standing in the way of, of providing a solid, almost consensual alternative to the to the, the Trump Republican Party? So you could rope in a lot of those people who wind up voting for Trump or the Republicans, even though they're they're holding their nose because they don't like a lot of things about the Democratic Party. Well, that's what we're trying to argue. The Democrats have done best when they have been the party of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American, and are able to present themselves as a patriotic, you know, common sense alternative about the way the country should be run. And it seems like there's a there's a lane for that in American politics. But because of the Democrats' own problems, they can't occupy that lane. They can't be the normie voter party. And we think someone needs to be the normie voter party. 
Someone needs to be the party that stands for the interest of all Americans and doesn't divide people. This is not rocket science. But um, so we're trying to make the case that that would be a good idea for some party to do, probably the Democrats. And uh, as John said, I mean, how many more thousands of books do we need about how bad Trump is? And he's a danger to democracy. He's a bad man, bad orange man, bad people. No orange man, bad. You know, what they can understand and need to understand is why it's so hard to beat this guy. You know, one of the most heartening passages of the book, to me, features a poll that you commissioned in May of 2022, asking primary voters in Wisconsin if they agreed with statements formulated to represent midpoints on some of these controversial issues that we've been touching on. I want to read just a few here so our listeners have that context. America benefits from the presence of immigrants, and no immigrant, even if illegal, should be mistreated. But border security is still important, as is an enforceable system that fairly decides who can enter the country. 74% of Democrats and 89% of Republicans agree. Police misconduct and brutality against people of any race is wrong, and we need to reform police conduct and recruitment. More and better policing is needed for public safety, and that cannot be provided by defunding the police. 69% of Democrats agree, 91% of Republicans. Last one, there are underlying differences between men and women, but discrimination on the basis of gender is wrong. 90% of Democrats, 91% of Republicans agree. What conclusions did you draw from this polling? Well, yeah, no, I helped formulate those those uh, those items um, in something I wrote. And, you know, full disclosure, they weren't originally formulated as polling questions, but I do think the results are quite striking in terms of the level of, of agreement with them across demographics and across even partisan inclinations. This is where most people in America are. And as John pointed out, you know, it's not a good thing that our elections are frequently decided on which, you know, noxious extremes of, of, of a given party become the most salient in an election. When there is this massive agreement at the center on a lot of these critical and controversial issues where people would be willing to listen to an approach that that was closer to that center, uh, that was closer to what most Americans really think. But, you know, the way the parties are currently constructed and the way the Democrats, as we argue in our book, uh, are constructed, it, it prevents them from it. One, one way I think about it is if you took that list of questions that we had, there were three and there were, I think, another seven. And, you know, I, I said at one point in something I wrote, well, people may object to these things because they just sound like common sense. Well, if they're just common sense, why aren't politicians all saying these things? Well, what Democrat would go out there today and say, you know, basically endorse all 10 of these things? Almost nobody. And the reason is not because they themselves, you know, they themselves may be fine with these views, but they're just afraid of the blowback within their own party. They're afraid of being attacked on social media. They're terrified of what, you know, some of the media outlets might say about them. But, you know, Nothing ventured, nothing gained to, you know, the future belongs to the bold. If you want to really grab that center of American politics, then you're going to have to start saying and acting like these things are true. Because, you know, that's that's the reality out there. That's what people, in a sense, want to hear and that no one is no one is telling them. And I, you know, in a way, that's a tragedy, because I think as long as we keep on going along the course we are, nothing probably will be resolved in this kind of noxious stalemate that that sort of grips American politics like an iron fist will just will just continue. Um, and it, it's like a drag. <laughs> I'd like to live in a different country. 
And just to close, I want to, I want to spend a moment on, on where we go from here, because at the end of the book, you advance the argument that in order to be successful and win back the working class, as you say, the working class of all races, uh, the Democrats need to focus on policies of economic liberalism and take moderate stances on social issues. How is economic liberalism different from neoliberalism in this instance? And walk us through what you think this kind of approach might look like. Well, the the first thing I'll say is something uh, pessimistic, uh, which is that the 2024 election, 2024 election is not going to be fought over uh, the kind of issues that Rui and I raise in the book. It's going to be fought over uh, Trump crazy versus uh, Biden bad. And I'm not, again, optimistic about the Democrats developing within that election, the kind of perspective that we're describing. But again, I think over the next decade, you are going to see some uh, rethinking and focus on, again, uh, jobs, what protects American jobs, uh, what kind of industry we want in the country, trade. We have to have an immigration system that doesn't put our own native non-college educated workers at risk, which the present system does. It pulls down wages, again, especially uh, for people who don't have college uh, degrees. So I, I think we have to focus on that on, on in terms of the culture issues uh, what what we described in that poll again I think we're not we're, it's not like we're squaring the we're, we're trying to take a little from both sides uh, I think there are just simply reasonable ways of going about this in terms of race and gender again against discrimination uh, but for equal opportunity uh, there are two sexes, but people who identify differently, transgender, whatever, should not be discriminated against. Uh, But both parties, again, have gone to nutty extremes. Uh, The Republicans are finally getting theirs for wanting to eliminate the right to abortion. Democrats have to beware again of going to an extreme there, but but that's a that's an example of where the Republicans themselves are being uh, victimized by their own extremes. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. I do think the twenty twenty four election isn't really going to settle things. I think it's going to be pretty close. I think the Democrats could easily win. On the other hand, I think I think the Republicans could win too, and uh, it is going to be fought uh, along the lines that that he discussed rather than sort of perhaps the broader issues and a move toward moderation, which might be salubrious. But I think uh, after that election, uh, we shall see how things evolve. And I think that there is an opening for this sort of common sense approach to cultural issues combined with something that emphasizes the fact that, you know, then Democrats are probably in a better position than this. People are sort of moderately comments, you know, sort of leftish on, on economic issues. They do want to see uh you know the united states have a different economic regime they do want to see working class people do better they want to see higher wage jobs they do want a a different stance on trade and immigration um they do want their welfare and their ability to move ahead in life and their communities to thrive be the number one concern for you know a, a party and sending that message and and practicing that message would actually go a long way. And I think one thing we haven't talked about that's sort of an interesting wild card, I think, going forward, is the whole climate issue. Because 
I think it's pretty clear that if you look at the Democrats' industrial policy, well, John and I applaud the sort of the general idea and move toward having an industrial policy. It doesn't necessarily follow that the way in which it's being pursued is the best. And I think you see across the Western world now some pulling back on the sort of rush to replace fossil fuels with renewables. Then, in fact, a clean energy transition will take decades. And in the meantime, you have to make sure energy chase stays cheap, reliable, and abundant, and you you know sort of protect people's jobs. Um, and it's just not clear that the the sort of the green transition as envisioned by most left parties, including uh, the Democrats, is really the solution to uh, moving ahead in the future in terms of industrial policy. And I think they're probably going to have to pull back on that. I mean, look, <laughs> there's been more oil and gas produced under Biden than under previous administrations, but nobody talks about it. And the reason for it is because that's how they could keep energy prices under control. So there's a message there. And the message is being sent in a lot of European countries as well. There's a need to pursue the energy transition, obviously an important part of economic future in a way that actually benefits working class voters, working class consumers, and that they see as in their interests. And I think that also is a part of how things are going to have to move forward in the future. But I think, again, through the 2024 election, I don't think we're, we're going to see any change in it because the Democrats, the shadow party, back to the shadow party, they are, to them, nothing is more salient than climate change, right? It's an existential crisis. We're all going to die unless we like move on this fast. And but, you know, there there may be a more moderate stance that's more productive on this whole issue. Uh, and, and reality has to bite in terms of how how easy it is to move an industrial economy off of fossil fuels. So uh, I just think that's something to keep an eye on. And I think Democrats are also going to have to come to terms with. But again, probably after the 2024 election, when, you know, sort of everybody's out of campaign mode and can catch a breath. Well, there will be a lot to watch this year. And uh, this book, I feel, has really equipped me quite well for, for the coming debates. I, I think I'll be thinking about it for, for some time to come. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.